Hello, and welcome to the History of Ancient Greece podcast. I am very much not your host. My name is Charlie, and I host a podcast called The Almost Forgotten. There, we take a look at the lives and times of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Rather than discussing people who all you history podcast fans know quite a bit about, I focus on biographies of those you maybe have only heard a little bit about, but who have still made a big impact on our world. For fans of the Hellenistic world, I recently finished up a five-part series on the Diatiki, the successors who fought over Alexander the Great's empire after he died. Mostly, though, I managed to fit one subject in each episode. Some of those have been Mithridates the Great of Pontus, Chandragupta Maurya of India, Hayred and Barbarossa of the Ottoman Empire, and Paramaswara of the Malacca Sultanate. But enough about my podcast. It's time to get back to the history of ancient Greece. Ryan has done an excellent job of taking us through the very beginnings of the ancient Greek peoples, right up through the classical period. I really have enjoyed listening to this podcast, and I think it's because Ryan clearly has a passion for the subject and a true depth of knowledge of it. That's probably enough for me. I hope you do check out my podcast, The Almost Forgotten. But first, let's listen a bit more to the history of ancient Greece. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 39, The Greek Counterattack. The Greek victory at Salamis ended the immediate threat to Greece, and Xerxes now returned to Asia with part of the army, leaving behind his general Mardonius to attempt to complete the conquest of the Greek mainland. Mardonius wintered in Thessaly, and the Athenians were thus able to return and winter in their city, which had been burnt and razed by the Persians. Herodotus tells us that Xerxes' uncle, Artabazus, who had been left behind to govern Persia in his absence, had assisted the Persian king with the crossing of his army over the Hellespont, back into Asia Minor, and then he led 60,000 of those men back across Thrace, with the intent to link up with Mardonius in Thessaly. However, as he neared the Peleni promontory of the Halkidiki Peninsula, he found the people of Potidaea, in revolt against the Persians, and so he thought it right that he should put down the revolt and enslave them. So the Persians laid siege to the city. While besieging Potidaea, though, Artabazus also decided to besiege Olynthus, a Greek polis that was also in revolt. The city was held by the Batiaean tribe, who had been driven out from the Thermaic Gulf by the Macedonians. After taking Olynthus, he massacred the defenders and handed over the town to the Halkidian people, then he returned to Potidaea. All of this happened during a course of three months, and at one point while besieging the city, an unusual ebb tide occurred for quite some time. Artabanus attempted to use this unusually shallow water level to attack the town from the sea, but after only making it about halfway, the Persian army was caught by a huge returning flood tide. Many Persians died from drowning, while those who knew how to swim were killed by the Potidaeans who had sailed out in boats and attacked them. Artabazus was thus forced to lift the siege and return to Mardonius, with those who managed to survive. Herodotus believes that this disaster occurred because of punishment for the Persians having profaned a nearby temple of Poseidon. Over the winter of 480-479 BC, the liberty of Greece was once again in jeopardy, and the success of Salamis appeared as if it would be undone as there seems to have been much tension between the Greek allies. For the Athenians, and Themistocles personally, the winner would be a testing one. The Athenians, whose city had already been destroyed and occupied by the Persians, since it was not protected by the Isthmus Wall, demanded an allied army march north the following spring to prevent the Persians from coming down to Attica once again. 
The Peloponnesians, though, refused to march north of the Isthmus Wall to fight the Persian army. They insisted that with Athens burnt to the ground, their best defense was still at the Isthmus. The Athenians strongly disagreed, and they felt taken advantage of, because it was their fleet that was the key to the security of the Peloponnese. We saw how on the eve of the Battle of Salamis that the Athenians and Peloponnesians couldn't agree, and nothing would change the following year. Bickering like this went on for the next few months, until finally the Athenians withdrew their ships from the main fleet and left the Peloponnesians to their own devices. And so, arguments and rivalries were once again driving the Greeks apart. Plutarch reports that Themistocles had made a proposal to the Athenians while the Greek fleet was wintering at Pagasai, saying, Themistocles once declared to the people of Athens that he had devised a certain measure, which could not be revealed to them, though it would be helpful and beneficial for the city, and they ordered that Aristides alone should hear what it was and pass judgment on it. So Themistocles told Aristides that his purpose was to burn the naval station of the allied Hellenes, for that in this way the Athenians would be greatest and lords of all. Then Aristides came before the people and said of the deed which Themistocles proposed to them, that none other could be more advantageous and none more unjust. On hearing this, the Athenians ordained that Themistocles cease from his purpose. However, as happened to many prominent individuals in the Athenian democracy, Themistocles' fellow citizens grew jealous of his success and possibly tired of his boasting. It is probable that in early 479 BC, Themistocles was stripped of his command. Instead, Xanthippus was to command the Athenian fleet and Aristides the land forces. Although Xanthippus was not mentioned directly, like Aristides, it would seem likely that he fought in the Battle of Salamis in order for him to have gained this position. Furthermore, although Themistocles was no doubt politically and military active for the rest of the campaign season, no mention of his activities in 479 BC is made in the ancient sources. Mardonius's strategy in 479 BC for the conquest of Greece was devised with the main aim of defeating the Greek army which was still on the defensive in an impregnable position behind the Isthmus Wall, while the Greek fleet controlled the seas. To achieve this, he formulated a primary and a reserve strategy. Mardonius knew that a fleet was essential if he was going to turn the Isthmus Wall by landing troops in the Peloponnese. Therefore, his primary strategy was to win over the Athenians to the Persian side by offering them very generous and attractive inducements on two occasions. There'll be more on this shortly. If the Athenians had succumbed to these blandishments, the whole course of the war would have changed and Greece would have fallen, a fact that Herodotus recognized and stated in the clearest and most unequivocal terms, even though it was bound to be an unpopular opinion at the time he was writing. When this strategy had to be abandoned due to Athenian patriotism, his reserve strategy was to tempt the Greek forces to come out from behind their defensive wall and fight a land battle on terrain that he had chosen which would allow his cavalry to deliver the decisive blow against the Greek hoplites. His major problem with the reserve strategy, though, was the potential operations of the Greek fleet in Ionia. He, like Xerxes, knew the extent of the demoralization of the Persian fleet and its inability to fight an effective sea battle after Salamis. If the Greek fleet discovered this fact, either through military action or by information from any of the Ionian polis, then a naval offensive could well lead to a second Ionian revolt. In this situation, Mardonius would have to retire with his army to protect his lines of communication and to suppress the revolt. Therefore, Mardonius knew that he could not wait indefinitely to bring the Greek army to battle on his chosen terrain, but might be forced to concede this desired advantage. Greek strategy for 479 BC is difficult to deduce with certainty owing to two facts. First, Herodotus describes the land campaign at Plataea in Boeotia and the sea campaign at Mukali in Ionia as two separate and independent theaters of war, and thus makes no attempt to explain their interdependent relationship in a coordinated Greek strategy. Second, the tension between Athens and Sparta, reflecting their different strategic priorities, did not produce a clear-cut, definitive strategy upon which both agreed wholeheartedly. 
The Athenians wanted the Greek land army to forsake the Isthmus and go on the offensive and hold the line north of Attica in Boeotia, because they had already evacuated their population and had seen their land and city devastated once and did not wish to undergo the same trauma the following year. This Athenian emphasis on land strategy in 479 BC may explain the very low profile Themistocles, who had favored a sea offensive at the Hellespont in the immediate aftermath of Salamis, and when thwarted, he supported a naval campaign against Ionia. As we have mentioned, the Spartans were reluctant to pursue this offensive land strategy because the overwhelming advantage of defense behind the Isthmus Wall, thus ensuring the safety of the Peloponnesians, would be put in jeopardy by risking an offensive land battle in Boeotia in order to protect Attica. This, of course, could not be stated so bluntly to the Athenians, since their fleet and their goodwill were essential to maintain the impregnability of the Isthmus Wall. It is possible that the Spartans' extravagant praise of and their honors to Themistocles, which we discussed last episode, reflect their support for his strategy of concentrating on a naval campaign against Ionia in order to force the withdrawal of Mardonius' army from Greece without the need to fight a land battle. In the spring of 479 BC, the Greek fleet of 110 ships, without the Athenians, assembled at Agina under the Spartan king Leotokides. The smaller size of the Greek fleet, though, can be explained by two reasons. In addition to the Athenians holding out their ships due to their quarrel with the Peloponnesians, the Greeks were simply short on available manpower. The previous year, they had committed most of their troops to the fleet, as many hoplites had served as marines and possibly even as rowers, and not so much to the army, the reasons of which we discussed two episodes ago. But now that their focus shifted towards the strengthening of the army, this ultimately led to the weakening of the navy. It would seem then that Greek strategy for 479 BC was to concentrate their efforts on the defeat of Mardonius by land, and that the Peloponnesians and Athenians were split as to where that land defeat should be. Herodotus reports that the Spartiates only numbered 8,000 at this point. If this is true, then this probably explains why the Spartans, whose military superpower status depended upon their ruthless suppression of a much greater number of helots, were reluctant to commit the bulk of their forces to such a hazardous expedition to save Athens. It was for this reason that Thucydides describes the Spartans as being traditionally slow to go to war unless they were compelled. And so it would take Athenian compulsion to finally force them to advance their army into Boeotia. Well, after gathering together his smaller fleet, Leotokides sailed Delos, tasked with keeping an eye on the movement of the remnants of the Persian fleet, who in turn were at Samos, keeping an eye on Ionia, in case they decided to revolt in the wake of Salamis. At Delos, the Greeks were in the middle of the Aegean, and thus could follow developments on the mainland as well, in case a situation occurred that required their assistance. Neither side was willing to risk a naval battle at this point, though. Similarly, Mardonius remained in Thessaly, knowing that an attack on the Isthmus was pointless, while the Greeks refused to send an army outside the Peloponnese. But seeing an opportunity to drive a wedge amongst the Greeks, and thus break the stalemate, Mardonius set about implementing his primary strategy. Herodotus does not specifically state what led Mardonius to try to ally himself with the Athenians, but he does say that Mardonius had sent a messenger out during the winter to visit the oracles of Apollo at Thebes and Abai, and then implies that perhaps it was advised to him by the oracles to form an alliance with Athens. Furthermore, he was most likely aware of the political squabbles between the Greeks and thought that he could detach one from the other. Anyways, in order to do this, he called upon Alexander, the king of Macedon, and tasked him with negotiating a peace deal with the Athenians. He believed that since Alexander was a proxenos and a benefactor of Athens, they'd be more willing to listen to him. We've mentioned it before, but just as a recap, a proxenos was a representative of a city other than his own, who provided assistance and protected the interests of its citizens, who was sort of like a foreign diplomat. And so, Alexander traveled to Athens and relayed the message from Mardonius, as if it were from the Persian king. He said that since the Persians burned their city, and they had burned Athens, they were now even, and all would be forgiven and forgotten, if they once again submitted earth and water to Persia. 
He also said that the Persians were prepared to rebuild all Greek temples, restore their territory plus the gift of more territory of their choosing, and permit Athens to operate as a totally autonomous city with the Persian Empire backing them. Alexander then expressed his goodwill to Athens and advised them to accept the offer, given the Persians' tremendous power and their vulnerable location. The Athenian populace was very much in favor of this, because Greek unity was a facade. The Spartans made it very clear on numerous occasions that they couldn't care less about them. The Athenian elite, though, had no intention of medizing, but wanted to use this to their advantage. Because when the Spartans had heard that Alexander had come to Athens in order to negotiate a peace deal, they immediately sent messengers to Athens, and the Athenians held off from discussing official business until the Spartan messengers were present, so that they could hear what the Athenians were being offered. Well, the Spartans heard the terms and were probably very nervous at this. If the Athenians were to Medes and thus give their ships and hoplites over to Persian control, the fate of the Peloponnese would have been sealed, and the Spartans knew that. And so their messengers entreated the Athenians not to abandon the Hellenes, because it was them who started the war in the first place. The Spartans then offered to feed and sustain the Athenians until the war ended, and warned them not to be fooled by a tyrant who was assisting another tyrant in the enslavement of Hellas. They ended it by saying, If you have any sense at all, you must not follow the advice of barbarians, knowing as you do that they are neither trustworthy nor truthful. After hearing what the Spartans had to say, the Athenians then turned to Alexander and gave this as their answer. We ourselves are already well aware that the forces of the Persians are many times greater than our own, so there is no need to admonish us about that. Nevertheless, we shall defend ourselves however we can in our devotion to freedom, so do not attempt to seduce us into an agreement with the barbarian, since we shall not be persuaded. Report back to Mardonius that the Athenians say that as long as the sun continues on the same course as it now travels, we shall never come to an agreement with Xerxes. Trusting in the gods and heroes as our allies, for whom he showed no respect when he burned our homes and images, we shall advance against him and defend ourselves. As for you, Alexander, in the future, do not appear before the Athenians with speeches such as this one, nor pretend to be doing us a favor while encouraging us to commit deeds that violate our tradition. For we do not want you, our proxenos and friend, to suffer anything unpleasant at the hands of the Athenians. And so with that threat, the Athenians dismissed Alexander, and he returned to Thessaly. The Athenians then give an equally long-winded speech to the Spartans about why they would never abandon Hellas, citing the Persian destruction of Athenian temples and the common culture, language, and kinship that they share with all Hellenes. They also said that as soon as Mardonius hears their refusal, he no doubt will be invading Attica once again. So they implored the Spartan messengers to hasten the Peloponnesians for battle. When they received this answer, the Spartan messengers then returned back to Sparta. Well, the Athenians were right. As soon as Alexander returned to Thessaly and delivered the bad news to Mardonius, he became enraged and gathered up his army. It was now June, and he marched his army southwards into Boeotia, collecting more men for his army from each place that he passed through. Although Herodotus doesn't say so, the Persians must have held on to the Thermopylae choke point with some sort of garrison. They surely would not have given the Greeks a second chance to prevent them from entering southern Greece, especially when the Persian fleet had gone back to Asia. Anyways, when he reached Thebes in southern Boeotia, the Thebans advised Mardonius to halt in their territory and to try to divide the Greeks from there by bribing their leaders. Mardonius, though, did not heed their advice, and he continued on into Attica. Realizing that the Spartans had no intention of protecting them, even after they refused to meet eyes, the Athenians, for the second time in less than a year, were forced to evacuate their city and once again seek refuge at Salamis. Herodotus alleges that Mardonius's motives for invading Athens were arrogance and a desire to inform Xerxes of his current success. However, he does admit that Mardonius reckoned that the Athenians would be more willing to give up their foolish pride, as Herodotus puts it, and accept his peace offer now, since they had been let down by the Spartans once again, and their territory was again directly threatened with devastation. And so, after Mardonius and his army arrived to an empty Athens in July, the Persian general repeated his offer of peace with the same terms to the Athenian refugees at Salamis. 
The Persian messenger, an Ionian Greek from the Hellespont named Morikides, went before the Athenian Boule and conveyed the same message that Alexander had. This time, though, an Athenian named Lycidas stood up and publicly declared that the Athenians should accept this offer and proposed to put it forth to be voted on in the Ecclesia. In response, the Athenians, both those in attendance in the boule and those standing on the outside, grew so indignant when they found out about his proposal that they surrounded Lycidas and stoned him to death. But for some reason, they allowed Morikides to flee back to Mardonius unharmed. Furthermore, when the Athenian women found out what had happened, a large group also became so irate that they went to the home of Lycidas and stoned to death his wife and children. Apparently, the Athenians were not in a good mood anymore, considering that they had just been uprooted from their city once again by the very same people trying to offer them peace terms. So any pro-Persian stance was bound to draw ire. Afterwards, the three polis that hadn't medized, that being Athens, Megara, and Plataea, sent emissaries to Sparta, reproaching them for allowing the Persians to even make it into Boeotia and demanding assistance now. They said if the Peloponnesians did not send their army to retake Attica and Boeotia and still chose to wait it out at the Isthmus, they would find a way to save themselves without them, meaning that they would accept the Persian peace terms. Finally, the messengers were allowed to relay their message before the ephors. Even after the Spartan ephors had received this threat, they were still reluctant to give a definitive assurance that they would go on the offensive, because the Spartans at that time were celebrating the Hyakinthia a festival of pre-Dorian origin that commemorated the killing of the Hyakinthos by Apollo, which caused them to delay making a decision for ten days. Herodotus says that he doesn't understand why the Spartans were so nonchalant at this point when they took such great pains to prevent the Athenians from medizing when Alexander had visited them. He suspects that they may have completed all their fortifications to the Isthmus Wall by this point and thus felt that they no longer needed the Athenians. Finally, though, a Tegean man named Kaleos, who was the foreigner with the most influence at Sparta, learned what the Athenian messengers had relayed, so he immediately went before the Spartan ephors and stressed to them the deadly danger to the Greek cause and the futility of the Isthmus Wall if the Athenians medized. He said, Honorable ephors, if the Athenians are not united with us, but become allies of the barbarian instead, then no matter how strong a wall is extended across the isthmus, there will be gates flung wide open for the Persians to enter the Peloponnese. So take heed before the Athenians decide to do something that would bring disaster to Hellas. And so after hearing his advice, the ephors were finally moved to take action. One would think that this would have been obvious. Regardless, however it happened, some sort of combination of Athenian blackmail and Peloponnesian pressure finally compelled the Spartans to take action, and so they mobilized the Peloponnesian army for a northward advance into Attica and Boeotia. On the following day, the Athenian envoys, unbeknownst to everything that transpired, showed up to the ephors with one last desperate plea to the Spartans, delivering an ultimatum for a decision, and were shocked and quite pleased to hear that an army, led by Pausanias, was already assembling to march on the Persians. Pausanias was the son of Cleombrotus and nephew of Leonidas, and took over as regent king for the young Pleistarchus. After his father died of natural causes over the winter, which we discussed last episode. According to Herodotus, at his command were 5,000 Spartiates, as well as 35,000 Perioikoi and Helot light-armed troops, seven posted around each Spartan man and additional hoplites and light-armed troops from the Peloponnesian allies. Once the Athenians, Megarians, Plataeans, Agenetans, and Eubians would join him, the Greek army stood at 110,000. Modern estimates have it around 80,000, which would still have made it the largest combined fighting force ever seen in the Greek world to that point. It was an army entirely of foot soldiers, though, which is something to think about in their upcoming battle with a Persian army so reliant on cavalry. Herodotus reports that the Persian army numbered 350,000 at this point. The modern scholars believe that the Greeks and Persians probably possessed the same sized forces in the upcoming battle. 
After the Athenian heralds began to hurry back to Salamis to tell them of the news, the Argives had learned that Pausanias and his troops had marched out of Sparta and at once sent a herald to Athens to warn Mardonius. Upon hearing the news, Mardonius finally realized that the Athenians weren't going to ally with him, so he turned to his backup plan. First, out of a fit of spite, he decided to demolish Athens once again. Since the city of Athens was already torched, Mardonius had his troops dismantle and take everything apart. He also set fire to the temple of Demeter in Eleusis. Then, he retreated north to pro-Persian Thebes, trying to draw the Greek army into the open terrain of Boeotia, which was more favorable for him to employ his cavalry. As Mardonius began his retreat, he received a message that an advanced guard of a thousand Spartans had arrived at Megara. And so, he modified his plan slightly in order to destroy these troops first. So he turned his army around and led it towards Megara, while his cavalry rode ahead and trampled over the Megarian land. This would be the farthest point west that a Persian army would ever reach, though. Because soon after this, Mardonius received another report that the Greeks had united their forces at the Isthmus, and so he turned around once again and made his way through Attica into Boeotia. With Thebes as his base, he deployed his forces on the north side of the Asopus River in an open plain and awaited the arrival of the Greek army under the command of Pausanias. Most of the Thessalians and Boeotians had contributed troops willingly after Medizing, except for the Phocians. So at this point, Mardonius sent some horsemen to gather up a thousand Phocian hoplites and compelled them to join his army. The Phocian hoplites, though, were gathered up and positioned out on a plain, and then surrounded and threatened with the entire corps of the Persian cavalry. When the Phocians prepared to defend themselves, the charging cavalry turned and rode away, either from fear of the Phocians or because they were ordered to retire, as Mardonius later states when he sent an envoy to the Phocians, saying that he merely wished to test their valor. Meanwhile, the Peloponnesian army had marched out from the Isthmus. Along the way, they were joined by the Megarians, and when they reached Eleusis, they were joined by the Athenians and the Aeginetans. At the same time, Xanthippus led the Athenian ships to Delos to join with the rest of the Greek fleet, and so Pausanias led the combined Greek army north into Boeotia. In August, they arrived and set up their forces near the burned remains of Plataea, south of the Asopus River where they were protected by the rough countryside in the foothills of Mount Kitheron. The town of Plataea stood in the southwest of this space, on the most westerly of six ridges, which connect the lower heights of the mountain with the plain. Three roads descend from here into Boeotia, the road from Athens to Thebes on the extreme east, that from Athens to Plataea in the center, and that from Plataea to Megara on the west. The Greek army took the most easterly position, which after a gradual ascent on the Attic side, reaches the fortress of Eleutheri and the pass of the Oak's Heads, and then descends steeply into Boeotian territory. There, they positioned themselves at the foot of the pass. In order to understand the operations that ensued, it must be noted that the region between Mount Kitheron and the Asopus River is divided into two parts by a depression in the ground. The southern part is marked off by the six ridges, which we have already mentioned, and the various streams that divide them, while the northern part is also hilly, being marked by three ridges, between which rivulets flow into the Asopus. To the west, the depression opens out into a large flat plain that stretches northward from Plataea to the Asopus and is transversed by the road to Thebes. Although it is not really clear when it occurred, as Herodotus doesn't make mention of it, this was probably the point where the so-called Oath of Plataea was made, if it even really occurred. It is entirely possible that it was a later invention to explain the very long delay in the rebuilding of the temples on the Acropolis, as the oath has only been recorded in later sources. Nevertheless, the delay is odd considering that they did erect monumental buildings elsewhere in Athens following the war. So the oath could be true, and Herodotus simply failed to mention it. It wouldn't be the first time that he left out some information either. Anyways, it is found in a legal speech by a 4th century BC Athenian orator named Lycurgus, 
titled Against Leocrates. In it, he says that the oath is as follows. I will not place life above freedom, nor will I desert my leaders, whether they live or die. But I will bury all those of our allies who die in battle. And after defeating the barbarians in the war, I will destroy none of the cities which have fought for Greece. But from all those who have chosen to support the barbarian, I will exact the tithe. And of the sacred shrines which have been burnt and thrown down by the barbarians, I will rebuild none at all, but I will allow them to be left as a memorial to future generations of the godlessness of the barbarians. Herodotus's account of the battle reveals that both armies, by their constant skirmishing and movements, would try to entice the opposing side to fight on terrain that favored their own forces. Mardonius wished for the Greeks to cross the river and attack him so that the battle might be fought on a plain, allowing him to reap the full advantage of his superiority in cavalry. On the contrary, the Greeks wanted to entice the Persians to cross the river and give battle on the rough mountainous ground where cavalry would be of little use. Soothsayers on both sides had recommended remaining on the defensive, which led to a lengthy stalemate. Finally, an impatient Mardonius sent his entire cavalry, under the command of Mycistius, out into the Greek flanks in a sort of hit-and-run cavalry attack on the Greek lines, one after another, doing significant harm to them and insulting them with degrading names. The insults were probably a tactic to provoke the Greeks into breaking ranks for a counterattack, or at least advancing into the plain in pursuit of their harassing foes. The Megarians, though, happened to be deployed in the most vulnerable position, and thus received the brunt of the cavalry assault. So they asked the Greek generals for help. When all the rest of the Greeks had refused, the Athenians volunteered to send a force of 300 Athenians to relieve the Megarians at their post. These Athenians, though, held their own against the Persian cavalry attacks. Finally, they managed to wound the horse of Mecistius with an arrow, and the enemy commander was thrown to the ground. The Athenians surrounded and attacked him. They were unable to pierce his golden breastplate, though. Realizing this, an Athenian jabbed him through the eye with a spear, at which Mecistius collapsed and died. In a desperate struggle for Mecistius's body, the Athenians called for help, and when it arrived, they drove off the Persian cavalry. Not only did they fail to retrieve the corpse, but the Persian cavalry lost many horsemen in the process. The Greek army was encouraged by their victory over the Persian cavalry, and so they felt emboldened to move their battle position westward to the plain of Plataea, which had a better supply of water. On the left were 8,000 Athenians, led by Aristides, Myronides, and Leocrates, and 3,000 Megarians. And on the right were 5,000 Spartans, led by Pausanias, with their 35,000 light-armed troops of Helots guarding them. Directly beside them were 1,500 Tegeans. In the middle were a combination of various other Greek contingents, with the Corinthians, 5,000, and Sicyonians, 3,000, having the largest amount of troops. When he saw that the Greeks had moved their position, Mardonius moved his troops closer to the Asopus. He arranged his native Persian forces, including the Immortals, opposite the Spartans and the Tegeans. The Medes, Bactrians, Indians, the Sakai, Thracians, Phrygians, Egyptians, and Ethiopians were aligned against the Corinthians, Sicyonians, and the rest of the Greek forces in the center. And finally, against the Athenians and Megarians, he positioned his Medized Greeks, those being the Boeotians, Locrians, Malians, Thessalians, Phocians, and Macedonians. On the following day, both sides conducted sacrifices to see if it was favorable to do battle. The sacrificial omens for both sides were determined to be favorable if they fought to defend themselves, but not if they crossed the Asopus and initiated battle. And so the two armies were at an impasse. Mardonius lacked patience, and he only grew more irritated as the days ticked away. His army was running low on supplies, and he couldn't afford to keep delaying. So finally, after eight days, he sent his remaining cavalry at night around the back of the Greek supply lines to the pass of Mount Kitheron destroying their convoys laden with food and livestock. Two days later, Mardonius tested the Greeks by marching his troops right up to the Asopus, but not crossing it. On the next day, that being the 11th, since both armies had camped opposite the Asopus, Mardonius decided that it was time to bring about a battle. Artabazus strongly disagreed with him. 
He believed that the whole army should pack up as quickly as possible and retreat behind the walls of Thebes, where they could resupply. Ignoring his advice, though, Mardonius made preparations for battle on the following day. That night, Alexander of Macedon rode to the Athenian lines and asked to speak to the Athenian strategoi. After they were all gathered together, he warned them that although Mardonius had not received favorable omens, he was planning to attack at dawn, since he only had enough food to hold his position for a few more days. He also asked that the Greeks, if successful, would remember to liberate Macedon too from Persian rule. He then rode away back to his camp and his own post. The Athenian strategoi then went to the right wing and told Pausanias exactly what they were told by Alexander. Herodotus then reports that upon hearing this, Pausanias then grew afraid of fighting the Persians and suggested that the Athenians and Spartans exchange positions in the Greek line, since the Athenians were familiar with the Persians already. They had fought them at Marathon and were victorious. The Spartans had fought them at Thermopylae and were slaughtered. The Athenians agreed, and so they did when dawn was breaking. But when the Boeotians found out what was happening and reported it to Mardonius, he immediately began to shift his positions too, so as to once again place the Persians opposite the Spartans. Then, when Pausanias saw what was going on and realized that his maneuver had been countered, he brought the Spartans back to the right wing, and once again, Mardonius followed him. Mardonius then sent a herald to the Spartans, mocking them for attempting to avoid them in battle, and challenged them to a winner-take-all decisive encounter of equal numbers. The Spartans, though, did not respond to his challenge, and so Mardonius was overjoyed by his phantom victory. This whole episode relayed by Herodotus is extremely doubtful, though, based upon what we know about the Spartan ethos, and not being afraid to fight anyone to their death and thus it was probably later Athenian slander to discredit the role that the Spartans had in the upcoming victory. Anyways, Mardonius then decided to send out his cavalry once again to harass the back of the Greek lines. In doing so, they blocked their supply lines and poisoned the spring that had been the source of water for the whole Greek army. With the Asopus also blocked off due to the Persian army hanging around it, no water supply in the hot August heat and no ability to receive provisions would have resulted in a disastrous outcome. And so the Greeks began to panic, and the generals decided to move the army's position closer to a stream that was a mile away, so there would be plentiful water, and to reopen their supply line over Mount Kitheron. And so that night, the Greek line retreated. However, the Greeks had suffered attacks all day from the Persian cavalry, and some of their troops were exhausted, resulting in the retreat not being very orderly. Furthermore, in the dark, the Greek center line got lost and retreated too far, and the Athenians waited too long for them to clear before they moved. So as the sun rose on the 13th day of the battle, they had not yet finished pulling back, and the Spartans hadn't even started yet. Seeing this, Mardonius either believed that the Greeks caved into their political squabbles and their army was fracturing apart, or that they were cowards and were scared to fight him in battle. Either way, since he might not get a better opportunity than this, he ordered his whole army to cross the Asopus and charge the Greek line. Although the Greeks were retreating, they were still in the mountains, and thus the Persian cavalry became null and void. And just like at Salamis, a Persian army was induced to give battle in conditions unfavorable to themselves. Mardonius decided to lead the bulk of his forces against the Spartans and Tegeans, launching a wave of arrows from a distance. They bravely withstood the barrage, but kept hope that the Athenians would come to their aid, as Pausanias had sent a messenger to the Athenians, urging them to assist them. However, the Athenians had already been engaged by the Medized Greeks and were unable to go to their aid. Realizing that they were on their own, the Spartans and Tegeans charged and both sides became locked into an intense conflict. Once again, just like at Thermopylae, Greek military and technological superiority won the day, decimating the Persian infantry with their massive shields. Such was the veracity of their attack that the Persians resorted to grabbing the spears of the Greeks to sort of neuter the phalanx. So they next attacked with their short swords. Aristodemus, the only one of the 300 Spartans not to have died at Thermopylae because of an eye disease, and thus was viewed with disgrace in Spartan society, fought with such fury. Although they removed the black mark against his name, 
He fought with suicidal recklessness. He charged like a madman out of the phalanx and killed several Persians on his own before dying. Mardonius was present in the fighting, riding a white horse and surrounded by a bodyguard of a thousand men. The Spartans pressed his location the hardest, and much killing occurred around him. He desperately tried to rally his troops, but as the Greeks closed in on him, he kicked his horse to gallop away. He wouldn't make it though, because one of the Spartan soldiers hurled a large rock, striking him in the head and killing him instantly. With their general now dead, the Persians began to flee in disorder, back across the Asopus, to their camp to take refuge. Thus, in this manner, the Spartans received their retribution for the murder of their former king Leonidas. Oddly enough, Herodotus does not mention Persian cavalry in his narrative of the main battle of Plataea, until when he says that the cavalry gave vital support to cover the fleeing Persian infantry. And so, according to him, this battle, like that of Marathon, was essentially an infantry conflict. Did Mardonius permit the battle to take place where the cavalry could not be effective? Were the horses worn down by their strenuous actions in the previous days? Alas, Herodotus sheds no light on these questions. By this time, the Athenians had broken through the Medized Greek phalanx. They retreated also, but in a different direction away from the Persians. The Athenians then marched to join up with the Spartans, and the other Greeks that had retreated too far had finally caught up to join in the siege of the Persian camp. The Persians defended their wooden walls around their camp very fiercely and successfully as the Spartans had very little experience in siege warfare, but when all of the Greeks finally joined the Spartans in assaulting it, the attack intensified and went on for quite some time that day. But it was eventually breached and the Persians packed tightly together inside their camp were slaughtered. Only 3,000 in the camp were left alive and taken prisoner. Because Artabazus had disagreed with Mardonius about attacking the Greeks, another 40,000 men also survived, because after Mardonius' death, he led them away from the battlefield northward to Phocis, hoping to escape eventually to the Hellespont. According to Herodotus, only 160 total Spartans, Tegeans, and Athenians had died. These very low Greek casualties for such a large engagement must be taken with a healthy dose of skepticism. Perhaps they refer to the losses of hoplites alone, not counting the perioikoi, helots, and other lightly armed infantry troops who fell. Anyways, the Greeks had done it again, standing victorious over a numerically superior imperial army. Herodotus writes that the finest victory of all those known to me was won by Pausanias. Following the battle, the Agenetans wanted Pausanias to take revenge for the Persians' ill treatment of the body of Leonidas at Thermopylae by chopping off Mardonius' head and impaling his corpse, but he rejected this, saying that it was unworthy of a Greek and especially of a Spartan. He then gave him a proper burial, befitting of an enemy commander. Pausanias soon found Mardonius' opulent headquarters, decorated in gold and silver with a full banquet feast already prepared for his upcoming victory. He then ordered his own servants to prepare a typical Spartan meal, and the difference was astonishing. Afterwards, he sent for the Greek generals. When they arrived, he pointed at everything and said, Men of Greece, I called you here because I wanted to show you the stupidity of the Persian, meaning Mardonius, who, when he had this way of life, he came to rob us, who are so poor. Then Pausanias laughed and ordered the helots to strip the camp of all booty and divided it amongst the men. Thank offerings were dedicated to Apollo at Delphi, Zeus at Olympia, and Poseidon at the Isthmus for their victory. Much of the Persian bronze weaponry was melted down to form dedicatory offerings to these three gods. At Delphi, they erected a large column of three intertwining snakes. On its coils were inscribed with the names of the 31 polis faithful to the Hellenes. It would be moved from Delphi much later by the Emperor Constantine to adorn the Hippodrome, or central square, of his new city, Constantinople. Although the heads are missing, the base of it still can be seen today in what is now modern-day Istanbul. The still-legible inscription reads, These fought in the war. And then the names of the 31 poles can be ascertained. At Olympia and the Isthmus, two bronze statues were made of Zeus and Poseidon respectively. Afterwards, the Greeks also agreed that Plataea should henceforth be considered sacred land, dedicated to Zeus the Liberator, in gratitude for the victory over the Persians. 
A festival would be held every four years at Plataea in his honor, called the Eleutheria. Herodotus claims that during his retreat, Artabazus did not reveal Mardonius's defeat as he would have been attacked by opportunistic Thessalians, but instead claimed that he needed to go to Thrace on a special mission. Despite safe crossing through Thessaly, he would lose many men from cavalry attacks in Thracian territory, led by the Macedonian king Alexander, who had attacked Artabazus and his 40,000 men from their rear as they crossed the Strymon River. Despite this, he was able to make it to Byzantium, where he crossed the Hellespont over to Asia in boats. For his victory, though, Alexander also dedicated a golden statue to Apollo at Delphi. Meanwhile, after the Greeks buried their dead, the Greek army marched against Thebes and demanded that the city hand over its pro-Persian leaders. When the Thebans refused, the Greek army devastated their land and laid their city under siege. On the 20th day of besiegement, the Theban leaders surrendered themselves on the condition that they would be allowed to stand for trial. They did this because they wanted the city to stop suffering, and because they also thought that they would get off by means of bribes. And so, after dismissing his army, Pausanias then led the Thebans to Corinth. Instead of a trial, they were put to death on the charge of Medism, with no opportunity to bribe anyone. Because of this, a famous Theban poet named Pindar, who sympathized with the unified effort of the Greeks against Persia, wrote that he felt distressed in his soul over the actions the Thebans had committed and were committed against them. Meanwhile, Herodotus reports that on the very same day as the decisive Battle of Plataea, a naval battle supposedly took place at Mycale, off the coast of Asia Minor. Herodotus's lengthy concentration on the land campaign at Plataea, coming after his full treatment of the naval campaign at Salamis, resulted in a less detailed account of this campaign, possibly on the grounds that it was anticlimactic after the two previous great battles. However, although Greek strategy had put the emphasis on a land campaign in 479 BC, it made sense to threaten Ionia by a forward advance and thus put the pressure on Mardonius. But the Greek fleet at Delos, which now included the ships of the Athenians under the command of Xanthippus and not Themistocles, as we discussed earlier, knew it would be risky to sail any closer to the enemy fleet in the open waters around Samos. The Persian fleet was still larger even after its defeat at Salamis, and in the open waters, its speed and maneuverability would have the advantage. But that changed when they were approached by a delegation of three Samians, with news that the Ionian cities would revolt if the Greek fleet attacked the Persians and that the Persian fleet was too demoralized to offer serious resistance. The Samians had sent them secretly, unbeknownst to the Persian-installed tyrant at Samos. After the messengers left and sailed back for Samos, Leotychides performed sacrifices. Achieving favorable omens, the Greek fleet immediately set sail for Samos. When the Persians saw the Greek fleet approaching on the horizon, they retreated to the Ionian mainland near Mycale, a promontory opposite of Samos. Their unwillingness to fight a sea battle confirmed their fleet's demoralization, as they fled inland for protection, where Xerxes had left an army of 60,000 at Mycale to guard Ionia. And so they beached their ships, and the combined Persian forces built a wooden wall around themselves and their ships, choosing to fight the Greeks on land and not on sea, because according to Herodotus, they didn't think that they could win a naval battle after the disaster at Salamis. He also reports that as the Greeks approached the Persian camp, rumor had spread amongst them of their victory at Plataea, boosting their own morale. Herodotus used this as an example, that the gods were clearly present in the events that happened. Anyways, when the Greek fleet reached the shores of Mycale, they saw the Persian forces deployed in a line along the shore. So Leotychides sailed past in his ship and had his herald proclaim, Men of Ionia, all of you who can hear my voice, Heed what I am about to say. When we join battle, each of you should remember freedom first and foremost, and make sure that those of you within the sound of my voice inform all the others who cannot hear me. His intention here was the same as that of Themistocles after Artemisium, in that either his words would go unnoticed by the Persians and he would persuade the Ionians to follow his advice, or if what he had said was reported to the Persians, it would make them distrust their Greek allies. Afterwards, the Greek fleet disembarked from their ships and aligned themselves in battle formation on the shore facing the Persian garrison. 
Herodotus doesn't report the total number of Greeks who fought, but modern scholars suspect that there were about 200 ships in total, and each could hold up to 200 people. And so, the Greek total would have been somewhere around 40,000, while the Persians had 60,000 of their own. As that battle was about to begin, the Persians disarmed the Samians, as they rightly suspected that these men would favor the Greeks. They also felt the Milesians too would turn against them, and so they sent them away on the pretext, though, that they needed them to guard the passes leading to the peaks of Mycale, a task that wasn't really needed. Having done this, the Persians then placed their wicker shields close together to form a defensive wall to protect themselves. With their backs along the shoreline and being at a numerical disadvantage, the Greeks decided to charge at the Persians. Xanthippus and the Athenians on the left wing, along with the Corinthians, Sicyonians, and Troezenians, advanced along the beach on level ground, while the route taken by the Spartans and the rest of the Greek forces on the right wing went through a ravine and then hills. As Leotokides and the Spartans were still making their way around this path, the Athenians had engaged and were already fighting the Persian forces. The battle was ferocious, and the Persians defended themselves admirably until superior hoplite technology won again. When they finally broke through their wicker shields, the Athenians and the other Greeks trounced the Persians. At that point, the Spartans finally arrived, causing the Persians to retreat to their camp. Once the wall was breached, all of those serving in the Persian army lost their will to fight and attempted only to escape. This caused the Samians, who were banished to the camp after being disarmed, to pick up arms and join in on the Greek cause in pursuing the fleeing Persian forces. Seeing what the Samians were doing, this led many other Ionians and Aeolians to turn on the Persians too, so much so that Herodotus writes, In this way, Ionia revolted the second time from the Persians. Most importantly, the Milesians, who were guarding the passes of Mycale, also turned on the Persians. At first, they misdirected the fleeing Persians so that they ended up back amongst the Greek troops, and eventually they too started to kill the fleeing Persians. After the majority of the Persian forces were killed, the Greeks set fire to the Persian ships and looted the Persian camp. Herodotus doesn't mention specific figures for casualties, but losses were heavy on both sides. The lead Persian general and admiral both were killed. The few Persians who had escaped at first took refuge on the peaks of Mycale, and from there they made their way to Sardis. After setting fire to the wall, the Greeks sailed away in their ships to Samos. The Persians had retreated, but the Greeks did not think their threat was over yet. And so, there they held a conference to discuss the future of the Ionian Greeks who had revolted. On the one hand, it must have seemed like a gigantic task for them to keep protecting the Ionians. But on the other hand, they knew that if they did not somehow protect the Ionians, they would have no hope of escaping punishment from an inevitable Persian counterattack to their counterattack. And so, Leotokides, king of the Spartans, who were anxious as always to avoid commitments outside the Peloponnese, argued that the Ionians should be evacuated from Asia and allowed to populate the mother country in the lands of the Medizers, those being in Boeotia and northwards. But Xanthippus believed that the Ionians should not be evacuated at all, and argued that the Spartans should not have any say in what would happen to the cities, who at one point were Athenian colonists. Athens was their mother city, and they should defend them. In the face of this vehement opposition, Leotokides thus yielded to Xanthippus. For the present, however, only the inhabitants of the large islands of Samos, Chios, and Lesbos, all of which had joined the Greek side in the fight, were allowed admittance into the Hellenistic League. The Athenian general Xanthippus then sailed to the Hellespont with the intention of destroying Xerxes' pontoon bridge, but when they arrived at Abydus, they found that it was no longer in place. As we previously mentioned, it had been broken up during a storm, and so Xerxes had to take ships back over to Asia. At this point, the Spartans felt that the Persian threat was now over, and wanted to withdraw back to the Peloponnese. Thus, their commander Leotokides and his Peloponnesian contingents sailed back to Greece. But Xanthippus and the Athenians resolved to make an attempt on the Chersonese, which was still held by the Persians, and which controlled one of the most vital stretches on the grain route from the Black Sea. In particular, Sestos, the seat of the Persian satrapy and the strongest town in the region, controlled the European side of the Hellespont, and all of the shipping trade that passed through there. 
Since Athens was very dependent upon imported grain, this made trade with the Black Sea of strategic importance, and Xanthippus was determined to bring these shipping lanes back under Athenian control. Thus, the Athenian fleet crossed from Abydus to the Chersonese and besieged the town of Sestos. The siege lasted for several long and difficult months, extending into the autumn. Within the city wall, the people were reduced to utter misery, even to the point of being forced to boil the leather straps of their beds and eating them for sustenance. When even the leather ran out, the Persian garrison saw the writing on the wall, and during the evening the Persian satrap, Artasides, and his son fled the city by climbing down the rear wall. When the morning came, the people of Sestos opened their gates and told the Athenians what had happened, and so the Athenians pursued the fleeing Persians, who had escaped into Thrace. Some managed to be killed by native Thracians, while the rest were eventually overtaken and captured by the pursuing Athenians. The Persians were shackled and led back to Sestos. Artasites offered 200 talents to Xanthippus to spare he and his son's life, but Xanthippus refused. They were to be symbolically executed. The son was fastened to a wooden plank and then strung up. Finally, as he was hanging, he was stoned to death. After witnessing the death of his son, Artasites himself was crucified. Having done this and pacified the region, Xanthippus and the Athenians then sailed back to Athens. They took with them the bridge's massive flax and linen cables to be dedicated as a trophy in their temple. With the capture of Sestos, Herodotus closes his history of the Persian Wars. The fact that his account of the Great War with Persia ends with this relatively minor affair has led some scholars to imply that Herodotus wished to end on a note that flattered Xanthippus' son Pericles, who was one of Herodotus' patrons. Regardless, the independence of the Chersonese was a natural consequence of the victories of Salamis and Mycale, as the Persians no longer were strong enough on the sea to challenge the Greek fleet, but its historical significance lies in the fact that it was accomplished under the auspices of Athens and Athens only. The fall of Sestos, thus, would mark the beginning of the next stage of Greek history, one in which we see the Athenians becoming the dominant naval and economic power in the northern Aegean and Black Sea region, finishing what Pisistratus and Miltiades the Elder had started over a half-century earlier. Following Salamis, the twin victories at Plataea and Mycale completed the Greek triumph in the Aegean and ended the Persian threat to mainland Greece. Although the Persians technically lost the war and were crippled as a sea power in the Aegean, it really didn't matter for them. They set out to punish Athens, and they had accomplished just that, and their empire was still ridiculously huge and wealthy. Victors record the history of their triumphs, and thus it's no surprise that Greek historical sources tend to depict Persian history as a gradual degeneration of their mighty empire, thanks to their loss to the Greeks. But as we shall see, it would be a century and a half still until Persian forces were defeated decisively, when they were conquered by Alexander the Great. In regards to the Greco-Persian Wars, it was not decisive, and amounted simply to a little hiccup on the far western fringe of their empire that would have no lasting consequences. They remained a powerful empire and a force to be reckoned with by the Greeks for a long time yet. They continued to play an influential role in Greek politics, both in civic disputes and in rivalries between Greek states, favoring one side and then another, and providing refuge for exiles, including Athenians and Spartans alike. Regardless, the second Persian invasion of Greece was an event of major significance in European history. Pindar links the battles of Salamis and Plataea together as the great triumphs of Athens and Sparta respectively. Never again would Persia make a serious attempt at the conquest of Greece, which led Pindar to write, The gods turned away the stone of Tantalus, imminent above our heads. A large number of historians believe that if the Greeks had not successfully defended themselves against the Persians, Greek civilization would have been strangled in its infancy, and thus would have effectively stifled the growth of Western civilization as we know it. This view is based on the premise that much of modern Western society, such as philosophy, science, personal freedom, and democracy, are rooted in the legacy of ancient Greece. Aeschylus had just began his career as a playwright. Sophocles, Euripides, and Aristophanes hadn't written their plays yet. Pericles was still a youth. Socrates wasn't even born yet, much less Plato, Aristotle, or Phidias. 
There was no Parthenon or any other classical buildings. And so there would not have been the greatness of classical Greece, because all those achievements did not happen elsewhere. Western civilization would have changed drastically then. And so, given the domination of much of modern history by Western civilization, Persian domination of Greece might have changed the whole trajectory of human history. It is also worth mentioning that the celebrated blossoming of highly influential Athenian culture occurred only after the Persian Wars were won. While this all may be an exaggeration, as it is obviously impossible to know, it is clear that even at the time the Greeks understood that something very significant had just happened. For the Greeks, the result of the Persian Wars was a tremendous boom in their self-confidence. Their superior armor and weapons, and their adroit use of topography to counterbalance their enemies' greater numbers, helped to explain their victories on the military level. But what is truly remarkable about this, though, is the decision of the 31 Greek polis to fight together in the first place. They could have easily surrendered and agreed to become Persian subjects to save themselves. Instead, they chose to strive together against apparently overwhelming odds. Furthermore, since the Greek forces included not only the wealthiest men and hoplites, but also thousands of poorer men who rode the warships, the effort against the Persians cut across social and economic divisions. The result was that this wartime alliance was the first great pan-Hellenic activity directed towards non-Greeks, creating an attitude that being a unified Hellas was a very good thing. They cooperated long enough to hold off a massive invasion, and with some excellent military strategy and tactics, they stood supreme. It was an incredible upset, which validated their view that Greek freedom is more civilized than Persian slavery. But now that the Persians were defeated, how long would it take for old rivalries to flare up again? Also, although Athens laid in ruin, the Athenians played a central role in the wars, springboarding their proud and ambitious nature that would lead to the glorious achievements of the 5th century BC. The unanticipated success of the Hellenic League over the monolithic Persian Empire gave birth to a civilization of extraordinary brilliance and originality. The unity the Persian Empire had sparked would prove to be short-lived, though, and its fragility would place limits on how long this civilization could endure. The victories at Salamis and Plataea marked the liberation of Greece and the end of the defensive wars. However, the revolt of the Ionians at Mycale and their desire to join the Hellenic League would entail a radical change of military policy, that being an offensive war against Persia in order to ensure their continued freedom. The reluctance of the Spartans and the willingness of the Athenians to take responsibility for the defense of the Asiatic Greeks laid the foundations for a superpower rivalry and conflict throughout the 5th century BC. In rising to the occasion, Athens would prove themselves on the sea to be every bit of Sparta's equal on land. As the Spartan-Athenian alliance began to splinter, the Athenians would create their own league made up of non-Peloponnesian states. Much like Sparta with the Peloponnesian League, their dominance over this new league vaulted Athens to superpower. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 40, Warhawks and Peace Doves. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes on your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless. But it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, 
I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, Patrick G., and Alex for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you.